Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International. And I'm Marty Dropkin, Head of Asian Fixed Income and Hong Kong Investments. So Marty, we're now over two years into this pandemic, and the world is still battling some serious supply chain disruptions. All the more so, of course, with the war in Ukraine and sanctions on Russia, plus COVID-related lockdowns in China. Exactly, Catherine. It really does make you wonder how significant and how permanent some of the changes we're seeing could be. At the beginning of March, we actually surveyed Fidelity's analysts about the main reasons for supply chain disruptions at their companies. COVID came out on top with over 70% of our analysts listing it as the main culprit. In the weeks since, as the war in Ukraine has dragged on and supply chain bottlenecks continue, those analysts have reported an even greater concern over rising costs and deteriorating sentiment. And since China and Asia are so central to supply chains for really just about everything, the regional impacts are amplified globally. Now, in this podcast, we'll be speaking to analysts and portfolio managers at Fidelity who cover some of the hardest hit industries, shipping, apparel making, and semiconductor manufacturers. How are these companies reacting to the constant stream of disruptions? And of course, what are they doing to help mitigate risk? From a China perspective, what should investors be wary of? And are there any opportunities? Great questions, Catherine. And, and supply chain disruption also feeds directly into inflation. Commodity and consumer prices are soaring. In the US, inflation is rising at the fastest pace we've seen in four decades. Policymakers, including the Fed, have started to hike rates, but there are questions about whether they are doing too little too late or risk doing too much too soon as the year unfolds. Marty, what have you got to kick us off? So a rather significant piece of the supply chain puzzle comes down to the shipping industry. For a while now, it's been pretty chaotic at various shipping yards and ports across the world. I caught up with Charvi Pandey, an equity analyst who dialed in while she was out and about on the streets in Mumbai. Charvi covers transportation and logistics. Let's hear more about what's been going on there. Hi, Charvi. Can you start by telling me about the role that the global shipping industry plays in respect to the current supply chain disruptions that we're experiencing? Hi, Marty. Uh, the congestions that we are seeing in the supply chain and the bottlenecks that are there are uh, pretty much across the globe, but there are three major areas that we can look at. One is US, uh, the second is the Mediterranean and Black Sea, and the third is China. And all three are for very different reasons. US congestion is primarily because of legacy infrastructure issues, COVID-related issues, and uh, labor shortages. Whereas in the Mediterranean and Black Sea, for obvious reasons, we are seeing the disruption because of the Russia-Ukraine war. Whereas uh, finally in China, because of the spurt in Omicron cases and the COVID-related lockdowns, uh, the resonation between uh, land logistics and water logistics has broken up. As a result of which, the cargo clearance is not going through as seamlessly as you would want. Uh, contrary to what I can see in India currently, I'm in Mumbai, which is the largest port in India. Uh, and here, because uh, COVID restrictions are not there, the cargo movement is pretty seamless. That's really interesting. I guess it begs the question, Charvi, as to whether what you're seeing is more transitory or structural in nature. I think there are both components which are at play here. Uh, transitory uh, 
is driven by, of course, one is the demand supply cycle in the container shipping industry itself. We have seen container rates just going off the roof because the demand has been very strong in the last two years. And uh, I would, uh, uh, I would basically attach two reasons to it. One is the work from home environment that we saw in the last two years, which incentivized people to buy more goods than services. Uh, the second aspect is, uh, well, the supply hasn't really been able to catch up as much. When I'm talking about supply, I'm talking about the supply of vessels to the freight rate. So everyone is enjoying exceptionally high abnormal profits right now in the container industry. The structural reasons for uh, the congestion, and that is more of a Western issue rather than an Asian issue, is the infrastructure, uh, port infrastructure and the logistics infrastructure. Uh, because these ports are very old, they haven't been able to upgrade with time as a result of which they are not as automated as let's say Asian counterparts and they are unionized because of which uh, the de deterrence to automating is also very high. So there has been underinvestment and the last aspect is uh, upsizing of ships. If you will look at the container shipping industry, you will see that ships have been becoming bigger and bigger over time as a result of which, uh, I mean, if I give you an example, last year we saw the evergreen ship uh, blocking the Suez Canal for a very long period of time because it was such a large container ship. This is just one example of how infrastructure, if it doesn't keep pace with um, equipment, it just breaks down somewhere. Got it. Yeah, well, it sounds like uh, there are some ships uh, that might be blocking your path right now, given the background noise in Mumbai. Um, listen, there's a lot that's going on there. Um, and it sounds like you, a lot of investment might be, might be required. You know, how long, what kind of time frame do you think we're really looking at for the container ports to catch up? If people agree on all aspects, it will probably take three to five years. And if there is a lot of negotiation back and forth, governments not agreeing with wage inflation, the labor unions are completely against automation because it means loss of jobs. So if those factors continue, I mean, if there's always back and forth in these arguments, it can be a decadal issue. I mean, you never know when these things solve. So it's about intent and, uh, well, I think diplomacy, I guess. So it does really kind of balance between that transitory and structural um, d dilemma that we were talking about. So, look, I guess what, what I wonder is in the meantime, what are the shipping companies and the ports actually doing in order to alleviate the backlogs? I mean, when I look at shipping, I basically think about the cyclicality of it. I mean, all these problems will become irrelevant if freight rates fall 50% from here because the demand will fall, there will be no congestion and things will just clear out themselves. I think that is the best case scenario in current setting, yeah. Charvi, thank you so much. It sounds like not just the ships are going to be going slow, but it's going to be slow going for, uh, for some of the supply bottlenecks to open up. Thank you, Marty. Marty, Shavi said ports are holding out to see what freight rates do before they invest in any expansions to accommodate larger ships. You know, for me, it was such a striking sign of the huge uncertainty in the system. Don't you agree? Well, it is. And, and it strikes me that it's related to the uncertainty in the world, right? I mean, it's a real confluence of geopolitics, fundamentals, and just, you know, sort of the, the big macro in the system. So it, shipping is a great area to explore as we're, as we're delving into this, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and even uh, Team China, they were discussing for many, well, have been discussing for many months just about uh, the, um, the sustainable angle of this and complying, and hence they're not building any massive new ships until they're really 
it's really understood, I should say, about uh, the various specifications from this environmental angle. Absolutely. To talk more on this, we're joined by Belinda Lau, a fixed income portfolio manager who's based in Hong Kong with us. Hi, Belinda. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Marty. Hi, Belinda. Uh, Let's start today by taking a broad macro view on supply chains and their relationship to inflation in particular. What's the transmission effect there? Sure, Marty. So inflation is basically the second derivative of this uh, supply-demand dynamic that we learned in Economic 101. And if you think about supply chain, it's basically um, how supply gets to demand. And this supply chain, there's a lot of moving parts and quite a complicated process. Mm, talking about, let's say, iPhone, how many components are needed to, uh, to source globally? 300 and a car. 30,000. So it's just a very complicated system there. And then if we're talking about, you know, what we are facing now, the high inflation um, scenario, and um, and you think about the input that goes into the supply chain, we have commodity, we have energy, transportation, and especially human capital. And from the supply side point of view, human capital is really what we are lacking for after the um, pandemic, and that's what driving the uh, supplies and inflation up. And if you look at demand side, we have a very strong demand um, really on the back of the very unprecedented uh, fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus. So, but if we just look at the inflation number itself, as Marty mentioned, let's say U.S., the inflation is 8.5% now, and um, the Fed is probably a very behind the curve, and it's you know, probably need to start their rate high, start their tightening a bit earlier. Now it's a bit too late and inflation really get out of hand. However, the real issue for inflation in this case is really the supply chain disruption that we're experiencing now. And of course, the monetary policy tightening, it can resolve partially the main side of the equation, but the true solution to the inflation issue that we are facing now is really to fix the supply chain issue. It begs the question, why is inflation a much bigger issue in the West in comparison to China and Asia more generally? So first, the domestic demand is weaker in Asia in general. And second is the supply chain disruption is less severe in Asia because of close proximity to suppliers. And also Asia is more self-sufficient in some major commodity or um, energies. And third, I think that's most important is that um, a lot of um, energy producer or upstream commodity producers in Asia, in China, or I'd say I would say in most part of Southeast Asia is SOEs, so uh, sovereign-owned enterprise. So the government has better control over price setting, especially for those very essential commodity or energy. So that's why we see inflation is less of a shock in Asia than in the West. I'm fascinated with what you said, Belinda, about domestic demand in this part of the world, because a lot of investors play the whole Asian consumption story, rising urbanization, higher incomes, um, you know, growing middle class. But you're still seeing that there's demand or the demand from the West is still significantly higher. 
I would say this is more of a short-term phenomenon. And now in in Asia, especially in China, all eyes on Shanghai mm. because of the lockdown. And that really put a drag on domestic demand in China. But I think that would be a short-term phenomenon because the lockdown really, I would say, is less, um, it's less about economy, but more about their political agenda. And what they want to do is first to prove that zero COVID policy is effective. Then they will move away from zero COVID policy. That will unlock a significant amount of domestic demand. And that's why in the short run, yes, we will see pressures in, in China economy. But after the shift away from this zero COVID policy, we do we have acquired a constructive view on China. Yeah, and so that whole pent up demand thesis, you're a believer in that. Exactly. It's a really interesting dynamic. And I guess Belinda, these these disruptions have been taking place not just in the last few months, but over the last few years really. And you know, in your view, how have companies in China been managing these bigger structural supply chain disruptions over the longer term? This, um, you know, supply chain disruption or concern, it really started, especially when U.S. and China have this geopolitical tension. And a lot of companies in China, they are actually expanding from just focusing in China to uh, Asia or a China plus strategy by uh, expanding their operation, expanding their supply chain to Southeast Asia. And that's a big movement that we're seeing right now. And Southeast Asia is still not too far from China. So it's just easier for them to expand supply chain that way. You know, guys, I mean, you just have to look in the supermarkets these days or when you're at restaurants or you definitely are seeing inflation come through and obviously input prices for businesses, but really it's that end consumer that is likely to be really hit by these disruptions and cost pressures. I mean, totally, Catherine. And, and when you look at that with energy prices and how that ends up in, you know, impacting the end consumer, it, it's it's a pretty interesting picture, isn't it? And you can see how it's putting some strains on, on budgets in the household. Marty's certainly a big conundrum that the world faces, and it's going to be very interesting to see how the various central banks around the world do indeed try and sort this out. Now, getting back to China, to find out more about both the Shanghai situation as well as the overall health of the consumer, I spoke to Ben Lee, who is one of our Hong Kong-based analysts and portfolio managers, who indeed covers this particular sector. Hi, Ben. Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty about the current situation with COVID in China, even as we record this in April. Shanghai is still going through a lockdown, as well as other parts of the country. So what do you see as the initial impact on this regarding supply chains for the sectors that you cover? Hi, Catherine. Um, I think in areas with uh, lockdown measures, uh, the production of, say, the non-essential goods uh, could be halted. Um, and then the magnitude of the impact um, obviously depends on um, you know, where the company is located and how the local situation is. Um, as you just mentioned, Shanghai indeed is the most impacted at the moment. Um, and then um, aside from production suspension, logistics disruption is another area of concern um, because local governments have put in various measures for um, COVID prevention purpose. Um, but that limited the mobility of truck drivers uh, because sometimes quarantine is needed. 
So what does this mean for consumers and their wallets? And how is this playing out in terms of what we're seeing from a consumer demand point of view? I think um, in China, the product supply shortage is the key problem. Um, although I would say um, China is already much better than many other countries. Um, certain industries, for example, auto, um, had worse uh, disruptions uh, and consumers need to wait for a longer time, uh, which leads to delayed spending. Um, and then um, supply chain disruptions are also leading to higher raw material and production cost. Um, but of course, this is driven together by other factors, such as uh, geopolitical tensions. Um, consumers may face higher prices, although I would say not every company has enough pricing power to pass through all cost inflation. And then to our second question on consumer demand, um, higher prices will naturally lead to weaker demand, um, particularly considering uh, the current weak China macro. So Ben, what about examples of Chinese companies in the consumer space that have faced problems brought on by the supply chain dislocation? Sure, um, I can give you an example of Shenzhou, um, which is an apparel OEM manufacturer, uh, and also they're uh, one of the largest suppliers to the top uh, sportswear brands globally. Um, so they've had uh, a really tough year um, last year, mainly due to COVID. Um, the company has operations in three countries, um, the China headquarter, which is in Ningbo, and then Cambodia and Vietnam. Last year, they had to shut down their Cambodian plant for one month in the first half due to COVID, uh, and then uh, the Vietnam plant for three months um, in, in the second half. Um, China plant was then suspended for three weeks in January this year. Um, and the three-month delay in, in Vietnam was particularly painful because uh, when they were finally able to resume production, there was a big cotton price increase and also forex changes. Um, so their cost base rose a lot during this time, um, but their pricing was already agreed upon from the previous quarter. And also to make things worse, they had to move some production back to their headquarter in Ningbo, uh, which has obviously um, higher production costs. So all of these led to a very big margin contraction and earnings decline year over year last year, uh, which was the first time in history uh, since companies public listing. Ben, what else could a company like this do to further mitigate these supply chain issues? Yeah, um, I think um, supply chain diversification is very important. Uh, for example, Shenzhou has already diversified by opening two offshore plants in Cambodia and Vietnam over the last decade. Um, China and ASEAN plants are two separate vertically integrated operations um, with both the upstream fabric and also the downstream garment capabilities. Their headquarters in Ningbo supplies to China local market and some APEC countries like Japan, Korea, Australia, uh, while the Cambodia and Vietnam uh, plants together supplies to the US and Europe. You know, having operations in various countries and regions can help the company move around the orders when one part of the supply chain gets disrupted. Um, it can also reduce operating costs and, and tap into the abundant labor supply in ASEAN countries. Ben, thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Catherine. And that was our analyst and PM, Ben Lee, talking there. It's interesting, isn't it, Marty? Because we've got this whole opportunity set arising from the diversification 
we're seeing or the diversification angle around the Asian region. But I guess one question, you know, from my side, what do you think about this? Is that, yes, you're seeing these manufacturing plants being established, but I wonder what the infrastructure is like and whether it is indeed as efficient as, let's say, China, who's been a big manufacturer for decades now. I mean, it could be viewed as an opportunity, Catherine, you, you know, especially if Chinese demand helps some other Southeast Asian countries and the companies there invest in their infrastructure and actually build that up. And clearly, that's a longer term initiative, but but it could actually have longer term you know, positive effects on on the infrastructure of some of those companies. And you know, the other thing is, I don't think it's unique to this region. We're seeing the same dynamics in Europe. And and I think if you look at sort of the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict right now and the supply chain disruptions that are coming out of, out of that dynamic, you know, we'll, we'll end up seeing this, this sort of infrastructure spend happening all over the world, I think. Yeah, definitely. So Belinda's still here with us, but now we're also joined by Terence Tsai, an equity analyst and portfolio manager in Hong Kong. Terence. You focus on semiconductors and tech hardware across the entire region. We know the global chip shortage story has been going on for a while, but can you give us a bit of an update on the current situation? Sure, Marty. I think it's good to take a step back and understand how the chip shortage was brought on. And it was really brought on by a few factors, right? Firstly, we've seen uh, chips moving from really just a PC-centric component to becoming more pervasive in our everyday lives, um, used in wearables, used in um, uh, our home appliances, uh, you know, going beyond just a specific application. And as Charvi said, the spending shift from services to goods during the pandemic uh, brought upon uh, a huge surge in demand. People spent less on, on restaurants, on uh, going to the movies, on travel, and started buying more stuff. And with stuff uh, and how pervasive chips are, uh, the demand for chips increased. Uh, the difficulty and the, why the shortage happened was it takes at least two to three years to build new capacity and to increase supply. And so it takes time for supply to catch up with demand, which can be very fickle. Uh, so that's why we, we saw that shortage. Um, what we're seeing right now is that, as we've talked about, uh, the higher inflation reducing the discretionary incomes for household. On top of that, we had that pull-in demand that we talked about, uh, which was the, the work-from-home spending, uh, the, the shift from services to goods. Uh, you know, if you, if, you bought, if you bought a PC last year, you, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't need to buy another one this year. So we're seeing demand start to ease, given the inflationary pressures on discretionary income, uh, and the pull forward demand that we've seen over the last 18 months on, on work from home spending, on consumer goods spending, as well as the catching up of the supply uh, from capacity expansion from these semiconductor companies, especially the foundries. Uh, so we're seeing demand and, and supply converge, um, and, and we can expect that to, to ease the chip supply, a uh, chip shortage in the uh, foreseeable future. It would not solve the problem, but it should help ease the shortage issues. You talked about semiconductors being a very cyclical industry. How are the companies that you talk to today navigating through these supply chain issues? I think for these semiconductor players, cyclicality is not something new. That's something they expect, uh, and they have a good track record of, of navigating these uh, cyclicalities. I think the current pain point 
uh, which is um, which is a challenge is the lockdown in China, where a lot of the component uh, assembly are, are, are done. So, uh, and there, it also exposes certain niche areas that are pretty obscure that we, we, we don't typically think about. For example, with neon gas, that is, uh, which you have about a third of that supply coming out from Ukraine, um, that, that is uh, potentially um, going to be disrupted depending on how long the, the war lasts. Um, but the good news is, uh, companies such as uh, the Korean semiconductor players, uh, they since the J the Japan geopolitical tensions, they have been building up. They have been more sensitive on their supply chain resilience, and they've been building up a lot of stock. Uh, companies have also switched from a just-in-time uh, supply chain management system, where they kind of take advantage and take for granted the global supply chain. Uh, to a more just-in-case. You're seeing inventory start to build up. Uh, you're seeing them um, becoming more uh, concerned with component shortages. Um, so that's, uh, that's just a few um, examples of how these semiconductor players are navigating this. Linda, let's just talk quickly about the dual circulation policy in China. So, you know, going off what just Terence was talking about, you know, the Chinese government a few years ago really wanted to ensure that they weren't impacted in terms of any global supply chain disruptions. They really want to ensure that we see stability and growth when it comes to uh, the domestic story. So lockdowns aside, when we look at China, what do you think the biggest challenges are? You know, even when we look at commodities, for example. Sure, like chip producer, if you look at China Auto, Auto, there are chip shortage issue because they're missing some of the necessary material. And, you know, we have been waiting for our Tesla for, for, for a few months and everyone is like that in Hong Kong. So it's those materials or products that China cannot produce themselves and rely on other countries. They're also battling higher material costs due to the war as well. And you know, if we look at TSM and TSMC, so the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, um, and they have a strong relationship with suppliers. So big producers like them aren't really struggling. It's really the small producer with weaker relationships that have little bargaining power that are facing issues because they require more global collaboration. Terence, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, or TSMC as it's well known, is, is by far the largest contract manufacturer of semiconductor chips, You know, clients such as Apple and Intel. But how realistic is it for, let's say, some of the Chinese companies to gain even more market share? Could they ever be a dominant player like the players we do see in Taiwan and South Korea? So there's definitely a political will and there's a desire to be more self-sufficient in terms of semiconductor chip uh, supply. China's a large part of the world's demand for chips, but you know, roughly half of that is exported back out of China to the rest of the world after being packaged and assembled, and then bought back. Uh, so there's a chronic mismatch in local supply and demand, and uh, chips are recognized as a choke point that the US uh, have over them. So the, the biggest challenges and hurdles I see for uh, China trying to build out their own ecosystem, one is with equipment. A lot of that's been sanctioned by the US government. Uh, you know, for example, uh, to make leading edge chips, you need ASML's uh, extreme ultraviolet uh, machine. 
uh, that is the uh, they are the monopoly and the sole source of that machine. You can't. Uh, there hasn't been a, a, um, a method to build a seven nanometer chips and, uh, without the, the help of an EUV machine. So that's a restriction. So the second aspect that is hard to replicate is talent. And over the years, uh, China has been very aggressive in poaching talent from Taiwan and Korea, uh, engineers, uh, you know, engineering talent from Taiwan and Korea. Uh, but uh, you know, they've been offering salaries three to five times that of the engineers can could fetch in their home country. Uh, huge benefits on housing and international schools for their kids. And from Grapevine, I've heard that they've even tried to build a Korean language church and uh, Taiwan night market lookalikes uh, in the manufacturing facilities uh, neighborhoods uh, in China. So even with the political will, even with the capital thrown at um, at talent, there hasn't been a real rival to TSMC, especially at the leading edge nodes. And this this tells you how difficult it is to to replicate TSMC's manufacturing success because it isn't about you know, singular talent. It's about collective, cumulative experience built up uh, over iterations and feedback from customers uh, on their chips uh, and throughout that design and manufacturing process. So um, that that's an area we have to monitor. But right now, uh, I would say at a very high level, the Chinese uh, manufacturing capabilities are about five to 10 years behind uh, TSMC. Thanks, Darren. So, so I guess no quick fix, but uh, three to five times salaries sound like they might attract some people over time. I guess, Belinda, you know, do you think building something like a night market, would that do the trick? I mean, is that going to be enough to attract talent into mainland China? Well, I'm from Taiwan, so, you know, working in China for night market definitely worked for me. <laughs> but I would say it's really an interesting long-term development to see and um, really ties into a lot of your moving parts, your political tension and this um, and this, this tech war. So, well, we looking forward to, to the development here. So what it appears that what we're looking at is another example of how supply chains are shortening and becoming more domestically oriented. What are the other broader trends you're seeing in this respect? Yes, Marty, there are two trends that we are seeing now. First is automation. So um, human capital is really the bottleneck for supply chain that we're facing, especially after COVID. So a lot of companies now, they, what they're working on is to put on more automation and more you know, advancement in that front so that they can um, lower their reliance on you know real human being working in a factory or the manufacturing side. And second is on you know renewable energy, especially for you know the war that's in Russia uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine really you know emphasize the national security in terms of you know especially on energy. So um, developing renewable energy becomes it, it become even even accelerating trend right now. So that's the two trend that we are looking at. I mean, we've all gone to China over the years and just seen the automation there, and even in other countries, whether it's South Korea and, and Taiwan, and it's, it's just staggering going into these factories. And you know, previously it was all manual labor, and now just so highly automated. And 
if what you're saying is this trend, it's just going to become even more and more of sort of automated in terms of this part of, of the cycle. But of course, that leads to the question or begs the question in terms of what happens to uh, human capital and uh, unemployment rates, etc. You know, and I think if we tie it back to to the investing world, you know, to where, where we want to focus on and the equity and fixed income markets, it really fits with our broader themes of we're seeing some short-term disruption. I think we've heard a lot of very positive outlooks, you know, which will take us through the longer term, but we might still see some volatility over over the next few months, right? Yeah, well, nothing goes up in a straight line. And and what's interesting in this kind of environment, really understanding, and, and I'm sure Belinda and Terence would agree, the earnings visibility that all these companies have and, and really understanding the dynamics, industry dynamics, policy dynamics. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you to our guests, Belinda Lau and Terence Sai, and to our other contributors, Shabi Pandey and Ben Lee. And thank you all for listening. If you want to read more about what's been covered today, please go to your local Fidelity website or fidelityinternational.com. The producers today were Rory Fong and Neil Goff, with production support from Seb Morton-Clark and Keith Chen. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.